0: Ecclesiastes, and we're doing our series Wake Up Call. So if you would, please turn in your um, Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 4, and we're going to be reading down to uh, uh, chapter 12. And just a real quick uh, uh, summary while y'all turn there and get to that place. My, my stepdad, um, he uh, chided me last time he was here, and he said, man, you, you rush through that part where you don't give people time. To turn in their bibles or get to their place or whatever and so he's like you need to slow down let people get there and I was like okay you well know, that's because you have like a, an old school actual bible most of was like bruh, bruh, bruh. you know like I remember when I when like uh, you know the old youth groups they used to do what they called sword battles do y'all remember those sword drills and everybody had to hold their bibles up was, we, the middle, our middle school ministry used to do this um, uh, we had an amazing uh, female youth staff. She would do this with them. And, and she would say, Romans 528. And we had to, <laughs> as fast as I could, I got it first. You know, whoever got it first got to read, and they got, you know, sword drill uh, prize of the day or something. I don't know. You know, it's something middle schoolers like to do, whatever. So but this is uh, Solomon's book, um, a, a, of, of a book of wisdom and wisdom literature. And many, many struggle with this book. It's a book that is... Uh, On on a face value, almost depressing. You know, everything is meaningless. There's no meaning. It's all vanity. It's just a vapor or whatever. But, in fact, it's actually um, written for our sake to give us a wake-up call. We're going to be talking about that briefly. So, chapter 4, verse 1. He says, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of the oppressors there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who were already dead, more fortunate than the living, who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evils that are done under the sun. He needs a hug, doesn't he? I told you, this is really seems depressing stuff here. Then I saw all the toil... And all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. And this also is vanity and striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end. To all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, "For who am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure?" This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have good reward in their toil. For if they fall, one if if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has yet and has not. Excuse me. And has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for your word. We thank you for Solomon and his experiment to show us that life under the sun is meaningless without you. And Lord, this morning... I pray that this wake-up call would wake us up, make us aware. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. So this series we're calling Wake-Up Call. And as we've said, I don't care how the wake-up call comes, it's never a good thing. I mean, a few of you guys might be morning people. I even know some people that don't even need a wake-up call. They just wake up. Uh, uh, Jonathan Duckett, who used to lead worship for us, he didn't have to wake up. He didn't. I mean, that you could have driven a train through his house. In the middle of the night, he wouldn't wake up. But right when it was time, he would wake up. But that is, he is an anomaly. Because most of us need a train coming through the house to wake us up. And we've shown some videos of some funny wake-up calls or some rude wake-up calls of people getting splashed with water or put some firecrackers in a pot next to their head or all kinds of number of, I saw one last, I, I was going to show more, but... Unfortunately, when you wake up, some people rudely, they use bad language, and I couldn't use the videos. But wake-up calls are also uh, really not just getting woken up from from slumber in terms of physical sleep, but they are a wake-up. We've said a wake-up call is a person or thing that causes people to become fully alert to an unsatisfactory situation and to take action to remedy it. So, for example, about five years ago, I went to the doctor, and they did, like, the blood work and stuff like that. I'm getting to that age, you know. And for a long time, they would just kind of, like, you know, make sure I'm, you're still, t- you know, you got your pulse, you're okay, get out of here, you're fine, you're 20 years old, you're okay. But then I get older, they got to start checking under the hood and checking the oil or whatever. And um, I got my blood work, and so the doctor comes in, and, and his actually, his name was Dr. House, believe it or not talked to charles house and he was this old you know rough around the edges navy guy and he's and he goes russell he, was, he had his paper His russell let me ask you something how long do you want to live i was like what was like and he, you know did this number and he said your cholesterol numbers are scary And he goes, let me show you something. He brings out this little display of vials of blood. Uh, And he's like, you see this one over here on this side? And I was like, yes. That's good blood. And I was like, oh, really? he's like, that's not you. You're over here on the other side. That's you. I was like, I mean, that that looks like Crisco oil or Crisco, you know, whatever, uh, shortening. And somebody stuck into the tube or whatever. And he's like, that's your blood. So let me ask you again, how long do you want to live? And so it was a wake-up call. I was like, oh. So, you know, midnight donuts, no exercise, all that kind of stuff, you know, a, couple, uh, a few too many beers or whatever uh, might have been a bad idea. And so I began to change. It was a wake-up call, and I began to change my lifestyle, started exercising and so on. And the next time he checked me, which was a good thing, after... Um, insanity inst- destroyed me for several months. I went back, and my my cholesterol was below normal, which was amazing. I didn't even have to have drugs. Hey, praise God! Right. So that was a wake up call. And and the Book of Ecclesiastes is very misunderstood because very often people look at it at face value and they think that um you know. Solomon was some kind of existential philosopher, it's all meaningless, you know, just kind of create meaning, just, you know, do what you can do to have meaning in this life, and he's not trying to say that, he's trying to say, life is short, life is a vapor, and so like the first wake up call is that all is vanity, this word vanity, we said, comes from the word vapor or breath, and our life is very short, and we need to live accordingly whether you're a believer or not this life will slip through your hands like before you know it and the more you try to hang on to it like a vapor or a, a puff of smoke if you try to grab it the more you try to grab it and hang on to it the quicker it goes away right very good picture there and then he, then when the second week we saw is that the second wake-up call is that your life pursuits are pointless it's encouraging stuff isn't it really encouraging, is that you're striving and you're toiling after wisdom, after pleasure, after folly, after partying, after any of these, no- wealth and health and whatever else, in the end, he says, you're going to die and leave whatever it is you've done behind. And that you can pursue pleasure, but in the end, that pleasure will end. And you're going to die, people are going to come after you and forget you. So you need to live accordingly. Real encouraging stuff, Right? Okay, And then we saw last week that God is sovereign and we are not. We saw that there's these rhythms in our lives, remember? It's like the, 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 the bird song. Everything, time, time. You know, there's a time for born, being born, there's a time for dying, and all these things. And we can recognize there's these rhythms, but there's more like recognizing there's waves in the ocean and then actually trying to discern what kind of pattern and meaning might come out of those. And you could say, oh, it's just chaos, but we realize that God actually does order all things. And we're told in that passage that he will go back in time and he's going to reclaim and judge and bring to account every moment that has ever lived from every person. And that's good news. Because that, that means our life has meaning. We said last week, either your life has no meaning or it has all meaning. can't be in between. Like some of it some means some, some of it doesn't. We saw last week that every moment has meaning. And so this week, we have a new wake-up call. The new wake-up call is, there is oppression and injustice, excuse me, there's oppression and injustice, and we're a part of it, okay? And so I want to look at three aspects to this reality. You're ahead of me, bit. that's okay, all right, he's, he's eager, he's eager to get into this and be done, is what it is over there, <laughs> But there's, there's three aspects to this. Okay, first of all, r- oppression exists. It's it's real. Okay, there's an ever-present reality of oppression. All right, and we're going to talk about what that means. But let's look what he says here. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. And in reality, I mean. We don't need Solomon to tell us this, do we? Most of us. You, uh, you turn on the TV. Watch TV for a little while. Become aware of what goes on in our world. And you will recognize that there are injustices and, and oppression still in our world. It is still today, with all of our wisdom and knowledge, we've said this before, we, we are the smartest, we have the most information that has ever existed at our fingertips and yet we still had the same problems that the world has always had. And Solomon, as he was looking and, and experimenting with life, trying to say, is there any real meaning in life? He looked out and he saw a world full of injustice and oppressions. It's all around us. And we mentioned it last week. It's like in the place of righteousness, there's wickedness. The place of justice, there's wickedness. And it would maybe have us throw our hands up and say, what's the point? Well, you have no hope. And so, but here's the thing. I used to say, as a a person that grew up as a white male in a middle class family, even though it was a single family, um, I used to say, you know, injustice, oppression, and even especially racism doesn't exist. We've gotten rid of all that. Besides, I have a black friend. You know, and I would say, I would say these things. And, and, and I'm going to tell you, over the last several years, especially as we've jumped into this church plant, and we've made I have made friends and been gotten into some friendships with people who have helped me to recognize that this because I don't see it, just because it doesn't happen to me directly, doesn't mean it doesn't exist. This is one of those things you try to teach your kids when they're little. You know what I'm saying? Just because. We can't see Jesus doesn't mean He doesn't exist. Um, just because you know you don't see the presents under the, we had to deal with this. I mean, our kids are getting older. We're still just because there's no presents under the tree right now doesn't mean there can't be some later. Because they were like, it is almost Christmas and there's no presents under the tree. And I remember thinking, well, it's because we're lazy and we haven't gotten to wrapping them all yet. We didn't say that, you know. We said, well, you just got to wait, you know. But they, they might, they. <clears throat> but and I would, I would have conversations. So, for example, I was, um, here's like a different, the difference perspective. I, I was at my house with a friend of mine who's black, and he came, he comes from a part of uh, our country that would not be considered privileged. Okay and in a place where the perspective of reality is different. And um, I uh, was like, hey, I, I don't even know why we were talking about this. You know, this is what guys do. I was like, hey, I was talking, we were talking about guns. And I was like, well, I got a little gun or whatever. And, and I remember making the comment, well, I hope, it, you know, if it went off, you know, that would be, you know, my neighbors would think something's weird or whatever. And he said, if that gun went off, I'd run and hide. Because, you know, police might come and arrest me. And, and I was like, really? You would think that? And he's like, absolutely. And we got into a conversation. And he was like, I, I have to be careful where I drive at night by myself because I could get pulled over. So those kind of things. I have a friend who was a pastor, actually a, a him and a co-pastor. He was white. And his co-pastor was black. And he had to drive because if his black co-pastor drove, they were more likely to get pulled over downtown. These were realities that they were facing that I don't face. Because, but the reality is, there are these realities um, out there. So, but what does he mean by oppression? Because I, I can't help but think of the Monty Python clip. When, um, you know what I'm talking about? When uh, King Arthur comes along with his, you know, with his coconuts, and he, he sees an old lady, he says, Old lady, and she's like, Man! And he's like, what? And he and, and gets into this conversation. First of all, she, she, he's not a lady, and he's not old. He says, I'm only 37, you know, and why didn't you just call me Dennis? And he's like, well, I didn't know your name was this. Well, you didn't take time to know. Anyway, it just goes on and on. And, and, um, he, and he's and he trying to find, King Arthur's trying to find out who lives in the castle. And they're like, nobody lives in the castle. And he's like, why not? Who is your lord? And he was like, no, we're, a, we're an autonomous collective, you know, and so on. And. And then finally, it, comes, it, it kind of all degrades down to uh, King Arthur getting really frustrated and telling him to shut up or whatever. And he's like, you're, you're oppressing me. You're oppressing me. See, this is a, uh, violence inherent in the system. Violence inherent in the system. Remember this scene? Whatever. I can't help when I think of oppression, I think of something like that. I don't know why. It's cause, probably because of the part of town I grew up in. But um, the dictionary Bible thing is this idea, by the way. This is not something you're going to find in the liberal left-wing uh, a place in a uh, university somewhere, although they would talk like this very often, okay? okay? The unfair, cruel treatment of individuals or nations which prevents them from having the same opportunities, freedom and rights of, as others. And so there's this major biblical theme that goes through scripture that talks about injustice and an oppression that is a real reality in life and in the world. Um, and, I, and I wish I could just—if I could, there's hundreds and hundreds of verses that address this issue that uh, um, talk about prohibiting it, trying to uh, and talk about how God hates it, and so on. We'll get into that or whatever. Okay. So what are some of the ways that people are oppressed? And I found a good little uh, exp- like a good little summary of it. Okay. Okay. There's different ways people are oppressed. One is exploitation. And that's when It's the act of using people's labor or work to produce profit while not compensating them fairly. Or using people for a means, uh, but beyond where they would want to be or whatever. And and the reality is, people are exploited throughout this world all the time. You might even feel like that. You might feel like the cog in the machine at some corporate entity or whatever. And they get these huge tax breaks right now, and you get a little bonus or something, right? That you feel a little exploited at times, and a lot of us do. Um, and so um, that's, that's a real thing. And another is marginalization. It's the act of relegating or confining a group of people to a lower social standing or outer limit or edge of society. It's, it's, it's uh, beginning to kind of move people. And a lot of Christians today are beginning to feel oppressed, Although it's minor, because we as Christians are becoming less mainstream and more marginalized. Although we'll talk about that in a little bit. Okay, I'm not going to get into the, the commentary on some of this stuff. Okay, devaluation when certain people are deemed less valuable than others, whether explicitly or implicitly. I read an article as a, 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 an Indian Muslim lady who who, was, who grew up here in the United States, believing that oppression. And racism and injustice was kind of a thing of the past in the United States until uh, a, a young, two young men, two young uh, Muslim men in her neighborhood were murdered over the fact that they were Muslims. And yet, it was kind of shoved under the rug. It was not really investigated. And basically, they said it was an issue over a fight over a parking spot. And she said, all of a sudden, I realized, because of my color, because of my religion, because of who I am, I might be treated less valuable than somebody else, and that became a real reality for her. And I I was listening to that and trying to like, whoa, okay. Another is um, cultural imperialism. It's when a certain group group forces cultural values on others within a society, or injustice when people are not treated on the same legal or moral plane as others, and then just then sometimes just plain violence. sometimes we think of oppression, we just think of just plain out violence being done to other people. And that's very obvious. And there's other ways that it happens. But here's the thing, is that, um, you know, there's all these different types of oppression. And here's the thing, the Bible addresses all of these. This is, like I said, a major theme that runs through the Bible. And so when when, uh, Solomon says here, I saw all of the oppressions now notice he didn't say I, I saw the oppression he, he specifically in the Hebrew uses the word all and then makes the word oppression plural realizing there is all kinds and different types of, of, of oppressions and now he has seen them all and it's led him to a place of despair and honest, if we are honest with ourselves and we really look at the state of our world, the state of even in the United States, but get out beyond that, it gets even worse, it can and will lead you to a place of saying, maybe it's better to be dead. Maybe it's even better to not have lived at all and not have been born. That's where he comes to. That's some honest stuff, isn't it? He comes to a place, maybe maybe it's better not to have, been, to have even lived to have witnessed any of this. Is where he comes down to. Because it is rough. It is real. Okay? But here's the thing about oppression, though. Okay? Oppression, there's always a downrange of oppression. I want to mention this because we're going to get back to this. You know know, what I mean by that is, okay? If you feel oppressed, there's a chance that you are somehow complicit or a part of a system that might be oppressing other people. Follow what I'm saying? You may be, now, we, you might be the 1% that holds all the power, all the wealth, and all the everything. And that you're at the very top. But the re- reality is, very few of us are, because they're 1%. And we're somewhere downrange of that. But downrange, there's always, a, usually a downrange. Unless, for example, you go to, uh, uh, I think it's Jardim, uh, Gramacho, it's in Brazil, and it's a garbage dump where families live, and with them and their children, their life and their livelihood is picking through people's garbage. So you follow what I'm saying, and and okay, or we could talk about sweatshops in China or whatever. L- look at the labels on your clothes. If it says made in China, there is a chance you are a part of a system. That is a part of, in some sense, some way, oppressing others. Now, na- that is not to diminish maybe oppression or injustice you face as an individual, but to realize that it does go downrange always, and so, and that's how life works. It's like the, uh, if you remember the the movie Color Purple, um, and the uh, what's her name, Oprah Winfrey was the the. The, the main star or whatever and she was horribly abused and oppressed by her husband and then she in turn it went downrange and she abused her children and even the dog that's very common that's a part that's the world that he is looking at and so there's this ever-present real reality of oppression and injustice in our world And as God's people, he wants us to wake up and say, listen guys, wake up, get out of your own reality, start looking beyond yourself, as hard as it may be. You may even despair of it, but you need to start being aware of it. So number one, the ever-present reality of oppression. Secondly, we need to realize that the equal dangers of oppression, being an oppressor, and being oppressed. This is where it gets weird on us in this passage, okay? Because first of all, let's look in verse B. He says, behold, verse 4, I'm sorry, the second half of that. Behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they have no one to comfort them. And so, the reality is, our world is full of people that are oppressed in some way, and some horribly so. And like I said before, we would just listen, pay attention, talk to people, stop listening to red or blue talking points. Listen to people, hear what they're saying, and you're going to hear a different world, different perspective. And that's what we're called to do. But here's the thing. Solomon does something remarkable here. He, he listens and gets into the shoes of both the oppressor and those who are oppressed. And so look he looks at the oppressor. Look, look at this in verse, back in verse four again. Um, he says, Again, I saw the all the oppressions that are uh, verse one all the oppressions that are done on their son. Behold the tears of the oppressed, and they have no one to comfort them. Here it is. On the side of the oppressors there was power. You, the word is here is yet. Or, and, but it can be translated. I don't think I like to translate it yet. On the side of their, of their oppressors, there was power, yet there was no one to comfort them. What is he saying here? Who cares, right? That's what we say. Who cares if the oppressors don't have anyone to comfort them? Why would they need anyone to comfort them? Well, there's a reason why he's saying that. Because being an oppressor doesn't necessarily mean that they are happy and are peaceful and ha- will in- end up in a good place. Does that make sense? The reality is, whether you are an oppressor or oppressed, you need someone to comfort you. That's the reality that he's getting into. Why? And so Solomon remarkably acknowledged the oppressor. Okay? Why? He knows that being the oppressor, taking. Advantage of other people. Sucks genuine joy out of you. Do you hear that? You cannot have joy. And meaning in your life. If it is built on the backs of other people. And so he's recognizing. That whether you're an oppressor. Or the oppressed. It sucks. It's a bad deal. Okay. But then going back to the oppressor he gets or the ones who are oppressed he begins to challenge them as well okay um notice what he says here he, he mentions them again he says in verse four and five he says this then i saw all the toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor and this also is vanity and striving after the wind the fool folds his hands And eats his own flesh. Here's the problem with being oppressed. Or here's the danger of being oppressed. So the danger of being an oppressor. The one on top. Is that your soul is being emptied out. And you will one day face judgment. That is a reality. As a matter of fact. God hates and abhors injustice. He hates and abhors um, these realities. Look at uh, Isaiah 49, 26 or just listen, He's just give you, or maybe it's on the screen, maybe, yeah. He says this, um, I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with the blood as with wine. Okay, that's some rough language. <laughs> okay, this is how God feels about those who oppress others. Okay, and so an oppressor is empty in their soul, They are empty in their soul of joy and meaning. And they face that. On the flip side is those who are oppressed. Those who are facing injustice. Those who are facing some level of of oppression. There's a real danger. And what is that danger? That your life will be consumed, eaten by envy. I see it all the time. And that envy turns to entitlement. And that entitlement turns to idleness. And when you're idle, you have nothing to eat. And so you begin to consume yourself, is what he's kind of getting to. It's kind of a gross extreme here. Is that the danger of being oppressed, there is a danger there too. Okay, And they're both equal dangers. The twin dangers is that those who are downrange of injustice and oppression will be consumed by envy, and this will lead to idleness and so on. Okay? So, with this reality of oppression. And then there's, we saw that secondly, there's this twin danger of the situation. So, but, okay, la- lastly, I want y'all to see that there's an essential solution to the problem. There is a solution to the problem. Okay? Um, Read with me in verses 7 through 12, please. He says, again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure. This is also vanity and unhappy business. Two are better than one. Because they have a good reward for their toil. Remember that verse. For, they, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls. And yet not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone two will withstand him, a threefold cord is not quickly broken so he's, he's ter- I'm a, some people try to divide this chapter up as a matter of fact I have heard those verses right there 7 through 12 preached at a wedding and maybe some would say well, you know, being married can be very oppressive Amanda thinks that sometimes <laughs> You know you got the oppressor and the oppressed. I mean it can happen. Maybe that's what he's getting at. I don't think this this is talking about marriage. What he's saying, he's giving us the heart of the solution to the problem. And let me tell you, it's not legislation. Do you hear that? The solution isn't to force the oppressor to do something. It's not to force people and try to and, and I'm not saying legislation can't help. and can't be a good guide or whatever. But if if, if what he's getting at here happens, we don't need it. Okay? uh, One guy summarized this way. He says that this whole chapter could be summarized this way. You can either hate your neighbor and so destroy yourself or so love yourself. Do you hear that? You can destroy your neighbor and... And in, in the process, destroy yourself, or you can love your neighbor and so love yourself. What he's saying is, the heart of this—if if, if the, the oppressor begins to say, "Hey, wait a minute, this may not be about me," and the oppressed says, "Oh, this isn't just about me," there's a there's a solution to this. Okay, that. In other words, in chapter 4, Solomon highlights the innate desire for us to get ahead of our neighbor rather than living gladly with the responsibilities that God has placed on us. You hear that? So whether you're an oppressor, your goal is to get ahead ahead of other people. I'm going to get ahead, or at least in spite of other people. And that's all of us, guys. I don't care who you are, you're thinking, I want a better house, I want a little bit more money, I want a comfortable, peaceful life, I want to live in a good neighborhood, all that. Everybody wants those things, and the reality is, is most of us want them in spite of, or because of what we have done to other people. Every one of us. Do you really care where your clothes are made? Do you really care... That there's people in this world that live on $2 a day? Most of us, if we're honest, would say, no. I don't care. I'm just like my new stuff. That's how we think. So this chapter points us to to a better way. Like I said in verse 9. Two are better than one. Because they have good reward their toil in other words if we would stop saying I'm going to stop worrying I'm I'm not just going to worry about me I'm going to look out and worry about others and if we all did that there would be a reward and if one of us fell there would be people there to help we wouldn't need a social safety net it would already exist and so he's telling us that love Generosity and service is the solution to what he sees under the sun. On the one hand, people implicitly or, or uh, explicitly or implicitly are straightforward or complicitly oppressing others. And on the other hand, those who live and being eaten by envy and the sense of unfairness. That's the world he sees. And he says, but there's, if people would stop living for themselves and start living for others, it, it would be better. Pretty simple, isn't it? And so, here's the thing. And here's the reality we need to get to. Especially as God's people, alright? And if everybody believed this and, knew, and really owned this truth, It would make a huge difference, okay? The universe, the world you inhabit, and the life you have today came from God's hand as something you did not deserve. Did you hear that? So here's, I'm going to do a little political soapbox here, and this could get me in trouble with some of you guys. But we talk about immigration. Let me just tell you, my stance on immigration in the past has been, sure, people that are here illegally shouldn't be here. We should kick them out. Because they came here illegally. But however, I just heard a thing. It was talking about um, Andrew Jackson and his life. And uh, somebody had gone, pastor had gone and visited uh, his, his, you know, where he had his plantation or whatever. And his life was about, number one, first part of his life was eradicating and removing and, and uh, displacing Native Americans. So that whites white northern Europeans could come and farm and live in this world and profit from it. And then he was a slave owner and fought the cause of slavery in the South in the Civil War. And so both parts of his life expose what all of us benefit from. One that we stole this land from a group of people and we built our wealth on the backs of a group of people. And those of us will say people don't have a right to come here legal and illegally. Who's here legally? Like, it just occurred to me the other day. Which one of us are here legally based in that? Not many. Now, again, I, I, I want to respect our laws and all that kind of stuff, but the debate, we, some of us lose grounding in that debate because we are here on some bad reasons. And, and it should just change our perspective a little. By the way, look how we got here in the first place. Every one of us are here because if you go to Cherokee, North Carolina, Native Americans live in the worst part of territory I've ever seen it's it's steep rocky cliffs you couldn't farm anything there or they're pushed way out west into a bunch of dusty dirty rock you know infested desert land oh but they're okay they they're happy there we gave them a good place or those slaves they some of them had good masters are you kidding me that's what we think And I'm confessing this. This is the culture I grew up in and lived and breathed when I grew up in. And the reality is, the universe that we inhabit, and, and beyond that, let's get outside of that. The air you breathe, the life you have, everything you have is a gift from God. He could take it away like that if he wants. We need to be grateful and say, this is all a gift, and I am a steward of what he has given me. I was reading um, uh, Tim Keller's book on the Proverbs. And he, uh, he goes into Proverbs chapter 3. And, uh, he, and it's kind of a little different angle on this. Uh, Proverbs 3 verses 20, uh, 30, 27 through 28 says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Do not plan evil against your neighbor. And, And Keller said this about it. He says the good that we must give to our neighbor means practical aid for economic or physical need. So, in other words, unlike many southern Christians would say throughout history, that the church just should give spiritual things. We just need to give spirit. We don't need to worry about those physical stuff. And that's a why. Okay, it is, he goes on, he says, it is striking that the text adds that this is not simply a matter of charity, but your neighbors do. To not care for them when, you are, when they are in need is not merely a lack of charity. It is injustice. Why? God gave it to you. And he said, give it to them. So when you say "eh," or when I say "nah," I'm not going to give today. I'm not. I'm not even talking about the church here. I'm saying give to those that are in need. It's it's not just a matter of oh, you just weren't charitable that day, and you were just not as nice as you should be. It is you have now exercised injustice. That's what these verses say. But the problem is. The, the evangelical church. Um, John Piper. This is a word of the church here. John Piper. He, he talks about because I, I think a lot of white evangelical Christians feel like they're oppressed right now, and feel like they're being discriminated against. And, he, and, and this is what he's ta- Piper talks like this. He says we have been dominated. Excuse me. I'm out the Christian church. We have been dominant, we have been prosperous and therefore we have come to feel at home in this world and have developed a deeply ingrained assumptions that things should go well for us and that that this is our world and our age and that being a good Christian and being well thought of must go together. And that poverty and sickness and suffering and death is the worst thing that can happen in a land of Christian wealth and health and ease and upbeat, success-oriented vitality. And so, we have developed a form of Christianity to support this ingrained expectation of acceptance and comfort, security and prosperity. This form of Christianity begins by focusing on felt needs, not on eternal ones that may, we might not even be aware of. It makes its appeal on the basis that Christianity will make us life a lot better for us in this world. It has not been a call to suffer as an alien, but a call to prosper as a respected citizen and to be very indignant and angry if someone reveals out Christianity as a liability and not an asset. And we wonder why the United States is moving a long way away from Christianity today because of that because we have failed and we have been oppressors and we have been a part of injustice and here's the thing guys Jesus came and was oppressed Jesus came He faced judgment. He faced injustice. And he gave everything for us. Why? Well, number one, so we could face, we we could escape the justice that was due us. Okay? Secondly, he, he did it so that we could live like he did, giving it away. Giving what has been preciously given to us did not save us to be fat, happy, wealthy people who live at the expense of other people. That is the the hard edge, the wake-up call that Solomon's bringing to us here. He's like, wake up. This exists, and there's a solution to it. It's called gospel love. Now, I, I don't have an answer to the world for this. Like, Solomon did not have an answer for the world. Because the world, be honest with you, is not going to stop seeking their own. They are not going to start all of a sudden be generous and love. The 1% who own most of the wealth in the world are not going to start all of a sudden say, oh, maybe we should give a lot away and start helping others. That's not going to happen in this world. But if any place in this planet, on this world where we should see Charity, love, sacrifice, and service—it's us. So let's talk practical very quickly, because it's late. Sorry. First of all, we need to acknowledge and confess the sins of our fathers, mothers, and how we are complicit in it. This—I'm not talking about white guilt here. I'm saying all of us. Being, and, and to, to say, you know what? How, what system am I a part of? What how have I been a part? How am I benefiting from the past or whatever? Where am I in it? And if and if I we in some ways, biblically speaking, this is a reality. We are in some ways we're not gonna we shouldn't be judged for the crimes of our parents, but we should acknowledge. That there's shame involved in it. And we need to acknowledge that. We need to repent of it. We need to confess it. And thankfully, a lot of churches, like our denomination, has begun to do that. Sometimes I feel like it's half measures. But they've begun to repent and speak about the the history of racism and injustice and oppression that the Presbyterian church that we are a part of has been a part of. And you, if you're a Baptist, Lutheran, I mean, any number of denominations. And even if you're a non-denominational, you came from one of those somehow anyway. Okay, so we all need to look back and say, oh, wow, how, could, how have we been a part of that? Secondly, we need to begin to seek God's help for us to live for others and not ourselves. Now, I'm not telling you go out and sell everything you own tomorrow or to this afternoon and give it all away. But it's, it's so... But like, here, you want to start? Come tonight. to the money life thing. Because a lot of us are like, oh, I would love to give more. I would love to be more generous, but I owe a lot of money now. <laughs> We've, we bought too much stuff. We, we're leveraged. Now I'm a guy I'm in debt or whatever. I, how can I give? I owe him now money, right? So it's about, sometimes it's about being a good steward so that we can. And then lastly, seek, here's the thing. Seek how we can fight for justice and equality in our world. Start fighting for it. And that starts with listening to people who are. And stop dismissing them. That's where I need to be. You know, oh, I just dismiss them. and Don't listen to what they say. And I wonder, then we wonder why it gets more and more violent. More and more aggressive as time goes on. Because we didn't listen to them years ago. What we need to do is rest in the gospel, knowing that all injustice and oppression was faced by our Savior. And instead of uh, becoming envious, becoming an oppressor, He gives. And He gives away. That is the gospel. And let's ask God to help us. Lord, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You for this harsh wake-up call. uh, That there is oppression, and there's dangers in all sides of it, Lord. When we live for ourselves, whether in envy or in um, taking advantage of others, Lord. It eats our souls and brings us to a place where, where joy and meaning and happiness doesn't exist. But when there's two, Lord, we know. there's When there's love and there's generosity and service, Lord, we know that joy can be. And so, Lord, help us to begin to try to live in these ways. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. And this, we come to this table at communion. I should be.